This morning, I want to encourage us to open God's Word to an ancient prophecy that speaks about the importance, about the significance of the coming of Jesus. And this prophecy is found in Matthew's Gospel, in the, in, in the, in the, in the prophecy of Micah. Uh, this prophecy is found on page um, number five, uh, 778, but it's in chapter 5 of Micah, Micah 5. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 4. And as you open God's Word there, um, I want to remind you of the passage we have read uh, last Sunday evening as we have uh, met in this place along with the community of the Noah's Ark Preschool and celebrated the birth of Jesus. I want to thank all those who have been here last Sunday night to partake of the special Christmas evening service. The passage we've read then, the passage we read earlier this morning in our service, was from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. And that Gospel passage um, uh, pointed to the reference, to the prophecy that Micah uh, spoke of. And this morning, our aim is to look at the prophecy that Micah spoke about and understand this ancient hope um, that Matthew will uh, use or has used to speak about the coming of Jesus So uh, Micah 5, 1 through 4. Here is God's word for us. Now muster your troops, or daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, To the ends of the earth. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you pray with me? That's God to to bless the preaching of his word. Father, you are a glorious God. You have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed to us your plans to bring about a ruler, a king. Father, we pray that as we consider the prophetic words that you have spoken centuries before the birth of Jesus, that you would help our hearts appreciate the significance of your plans, of what you have revealed long ago. And as, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to, to celebrate the coming of Christ, let us worship you even greater, even in greater ways, for, for the prophetic word you have spoken. And may our hearts be ready to worship Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Matthew identified this passage that we have just read as playing a key role in providing the clue that guided that the, the Magi, the wise men, to find where Christ was to be born. When the Magi came in Jerusalem and asked Herod, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod was greatly troubled. And with him, the entire city of Jerusalem. And he went, to the, he went to, the, to, the, to the scribes and to the 
um, high priests, and he asks of them. And the, and the, and the, uh, high, the high priests and the scribes told them, and then Herod told the, the wise men, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bringing this prophecy from Micah provided not only a clue to the wise men, but it also confirms for us uh, the significance of the birth of Jesus. This prophecy helps us to see the birth of Jesus as a direct fulfillment of ancient hopes that God revealed to his people centuries earlier. But what are those hopes that God promised to his people? What are those ancient hopes that God, um, in the birth of Jesus, that God would fulfill? In order to see these ancient hopes, we need to look back at, at the time of Micah. We need to look at the prophecy that Micah wrote. Micah was a prophet who lived around the time of Isaiah. Now, our church knows well what Isaiah was about. We have spent almost a whole year um, working through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, Micah lived at a time when the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into exile by Assyria. And at the same time, the southern kingdom of Judah was also, also threatened and attacked by Assyria and barely escaped. Did you know that the book of Micah is, the, is quoted not only by the New Testament in Matthew, but it's also quoted by another book in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah quoted the book of Micah. Uh, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 26, 18, said the following about Micah. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So we know when Micah prophesied in the days of Hezekiah and said to all the people of Judah, and this was Micah's message, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. From this quotation that Jeremiah gives, we get a sense of, of the message of Micah. Uh, much of Micah's message included announcement of God's judgment against the people of Judah. And if you read the book of Micah, most of it, especially the first half of it, is filled with these warnings of God's coming judgment and, and, an, and an expose of the sins and the rebellion of God's people. Even though a big part of the book of Micah is filled with messages of judgment, this book is also sprinkled with glimpses of tremendous hope. And our text that we have just read this morning is perhaps the highest peak in the peaks of hope that we see sprinkled through this book. Our text includes some details about how God will look beyond the judgment, will look beyond the, the exile, and God will bring about a great restoration. But Micah wants to be very clear that God's restoration 
is very specific. God's hope is very specific. It's a hope and a restoration that comes through a new king that God will raise up. Now, friends, today it's not hard to convince our society with with messages of hope. Our society appreciates those who can bring hope, especially in a dire situation. But the hope that this prophecy of Micah brings is a hope wrapped around a king that God promised to send. And the New Testament makes incredibly clear that the new king that that Micah speaks of is none other than Jesus Christ. The hope of restoration, the hope that that Micah speaks of, this ancient hope is, is Jesus Christ. So that the Old Testament announcement of his birth teaches us greatly about how God works to bring about his restoration and teaches us about this king. So let's enter the world of Micah, uh, the world that Micah experienced and understand the hope of restoration that God promised to his people. And as we look at Micah's prophecy, my prayer is that we would understand, we would grow in our appreciation of the significance of Jesus' birth. We look at two major questions uh, as, we can, as we look at this prophecy. What's special about his coming? And what's special about his reign? These are the two questions that will, will frame our time together in the book of Micah this morning. What's special about his coming? And what's special about his reign? Uh, the, the good news begins really in verse 2. Uh, and there, there, it starts with the words, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Notice what's special about his coming. Notice three things in this verse. His coming is from an unnoticed place. God identifies the birthplace of this new king as Bethlehem. Now, if you're a Jew, uh, Bethlehem had a lot of significance for a Jewish person. Um, It was the place where Rachel was buried. It was a place where Naomi came from and Ruth returned, or, or Naomi returned back with Ruth and Boaz married Ruth. It all happened in Bethlehem. Certainly, Bethlehem was a place where King David uh, came from. But in this passage, when Micah emphasizes Bethlehem, uh, what's emphasized about Bethlehem is that Bethlehem is considered to be too little to be among the clans of Judah. This is what God wants to emphasize about Bethlehem in this prophecy. It was a small town. It was a town that no one would know about and would not deserve to be counted among the, about the towns of Judah if you looked merely at, at social, economic, material statistics. Yet God brings out great hope from a place that is considered too little to be counted, too lowly to be held up as a strategic place with great potential. Yet out of that place, God promised to raise up a ruler. Out of that little town, God planned to bring up a ruler who shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this is a beautiful part about this 
prophecy in Micah, what we see contrasted is a small town in contrast with a ruler who will be great to the ends of the earth. Why this characteristic of, of Bethlehem? To show us that God is able to bring a great outcome out of that which is considered insignificant and small. This is one way in which God confounded the pride of mankind, showing us that what we value, that what we esteem, that what we think is strategic and high potential, in God's eyes, it is no recipe for spiritual restoration. God works, rather, through what seems insignificant in our eyes. So by choosing Bethlehem, God shows that his rescue operation uh, does not depend on human greatness or human strength. By rescuing in this way, God is stripping away our reasons to boast in what people can accomplish. Friends, God doesn't need our greatness to do something great for himself. God's rescue plan comes to us not because God is impressed with us, not because, God, because the world is impressed with us. Quite the opposite. God's rescue plan comes entirely on the basis of God's mercy. He takes that which is small in our eyes and wants to make something great for His name. So friends, ask yourself, are you more guided? Are you more guided in your ways by what seems impressive to you or to our society? Are you a person who takes cues from what our culture deems as important, as powerful, or as strategic? Remember that God does not operate with those values. God turns out a great rescue plan from the least expected of places. My friends, I wish I can tell you that I've learned this lesson. But I have not. Friends, even though I know these truths, I often catch myself being impressed by human strength and human potential. And often I feel greatly discouraged when the human strength and the human potential turns out to fail. And then I remind myself, why am I so discouraged? The Lord doesn't work through human strength and human potential. When I see failure, why do I go so quickly to times of questioning myself or questioning others or discouragement? And I'm reminded, God is not impressed with what seems potentially strong and strategic in our eyes. And the Lord often has to remind me and my own heart, God doesn't need what is humanly great to accomplish something great for His name. Friends, I know these truths, and yet my heart every week fails to live by them. And I wonder if, if by any means I may not be alone in learning these lessons. I wonder if this lesson is, is for all of us this morning as well. His, the coming of this reign, of this king, is from an unlikely, unexpected 
surprising place. A second thing that we notice about this coming of, of this king is that his coming is for God. Notice what Micah says or what God says about his coming. Uh, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. As I was working through this passage, that, those two words struck my attention. For me. Now, we think that this ruler is primarily for God's people, right? Now, humanly speaking, those who rule should rule for the people. We know they should not rule for themselves. We know they should not rule for their self-interests, but for the people. But the ruler that God sends for his people, actually God says, I'm raising him up to be a ruler who would reign not for himself, but not even for the people. I'm raising him, him up for me. Why is this important to emphasize? Because it reminds us that the ruler that God promised to send will accomplish not human plans, not human purposes, but God's plans and God's purposes. His kingship will be for God's sake, not ultimately for our sake. His kingship would accomplish ultimately not people's agendas, but God's agenda. And perhaps the best illustration of this is if we recognize the first time God said this for me when he chose a king. Do you know when it was? When King Saul, over and over, despised the word of the Lord against what Samuel the prophet has told Saul to do, God said, I'm done with Saul. I'm rejecting him. Yes, he's a sitting king on the throne of Israel, but he's no longer my king because he's not listening to what I'm telling him. So God told Samuel, the prophet, in 1 Samuel 16, the following words. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him, from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. How interesting that God, when God called up David to replace Saul, God uses this language. I have provided. He doesn't say, I provided for the people a king. He says, I have provided for myself. Saul has departed from the Lord. Saul, even though he was the active king, was no longer acting in accordance with God's word. Saul was still king, but not a king for the Lord. He feared more what people said than what God said. When the sacrifice came, when time to sacrifice came, and, and Saul waited for Samuel to show up, and Samuel um, delayed, 
Saul went ahead and did the sacrifice on his own without waiting for Samuel. And when Samuel came and confronted Saul about it, Samuel said, I have feared the, Lord, the people. A king who would fear more what people said than what God said. A king who would be more concerned about the people's opinions and plans rather than God's opinions and God's plans and God's agenda. While a similar language is used again by Micah here, the ruler that God will raise up will be first of all a ruler for God. The new king that God promised will serve God's agenda and God's plans, not people's agendas and not people's plans. Friends, sometimes we may expect God's king to reign for us, for our purposes, for our timeline, with our methods and with our strategies. But God says, I'm raising him up for me. Ask yourself, do you want a king who is ultimately reigning to serve you and your plans and your aspirations? Or do you want a king who ultimately reigns to serve God? Now, how do we fall in this trap? How, how is it possible that we may actually prefer, uh, at least quietly in our own hearts, a king who just serves our agenda? We, we may not think that Jesus um, is ultimately about God, but that he is ultimately about us. And we may feel very discouraged when Jesus is not fulfilling our plans, our hopes, our timelines. Jesus has ultimately come, dear friends, to accomplish the will of his Father. Everything Jesus came to accomplish, he ultimately came to accomplish for his Father, not for us. Sometimes even in our desire to emphasize how, how much Jesus loves us, and that's so true, we might sometimes do it in such a way that we actually fail to recognize that actually Jesus did it all first and foremost for his Father, for God. You realize that if Jesus had been ultimately about his plans um, and not about the Father's will, salvation would have not been actually accomplished. Remember the Garden of, of, of Gethsemane when Jesus was asking his Father, Father, if it is possible for you to remove this cup But if not, let not my will, but yours. It was very important that this new king would ultimately be about the will of God. Not about his will. Not even about the will of the people. It was about to be the will of God. This principle, dear friends, applies also to the life of, of, of our church today. As we think about the under-shepherds, that, that Jesus calls and raises up in churches. Churches are being called to be, to be shepherded by spiritual leaders who would do not what people want them to do, but what God wants them to do. In the life of a church, spiritual leaders are affirmed by the congregation. And, and we are in the life of, of, of our congregation at a time when we are praying and seeing if, and, and, and asking if the Lord might raise up other shepherds, lay shepherds among us to help us shepherd this congregation. But friends, it's important for us to recognize that even as we think about that, that the under-shepherds in, in a congregation should be people who model what Jesus has been and done 
that they would be first and foremost about God and only secondarily about the people of God. God's people will be served best by a king who is committed to accomplish not the will of the people, but the will of God. That's how God's people will best be, will be served. So it's important to hear that the ancient hope for a, a new king included this characteristic about the king, that from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler. A third characteristic about the coming of this king, what's special about his coming, is that his coming confirms God's ancient plans. Look at verse 2 again. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This phrase, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, uh, can be interpreted in two ways. Some Bible translations interpret it as if it's referring to eternity, uh, the the NASB translates it in this way. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. But there's another way in which this phrase can also be interpreted in a very legitimate way. It also can simply mean that, like the ESV translates it, as his coming is from days in the past, from old days. In other words, it could be a reference to the old promises that God has given much earlier. In this passage, the second interpretation is the most likely one, even though it would be true that the coming of this king that God promises would also be a coming from eternity. But in this passage, the most likely use is that the coming of old refers to his coming has been prophesied and promised by God much earlier. Now, why would, be this, why would this be significant in Micah's time? If you looked at verse 1, which I intentionally have skipped up until now, you get to see what was going on in Micah's day. Verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, this is a picture, uh, first of all, a call for the troops to start getting together and defend the city. Why? Because uh, the city is, is threatened by siege. This is a call for human strength to come up and defend the city. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is in view here. Uh, they, they were responsible. They did everything they could to protect the city as they should have. But it's very clear just from this verse that they are failing. How do we know that? Because we are told at the end of the verse, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. In other words, the army has penetrated through the troops. They have been able to access the king and strike him on the cheek. This is a sign of humiliation. This is a sign of, of being totally vulnerable with nothing left to protect yourself. The circumstances in which Micah speaks of or speaks about are circumstances of total hopelessness. All human strength, all human defense has been, has been spent and with no results to bring about self-protection, self-dignity, 
Shame, defeat, humiliation. If you lived in Micah's day, these were the words that define your existence at that time. And God interrupts this experience of humiliation, defeat, and hopelessness. With verse 2, but you. Only God has a power to speak that kind of but you in a time of hope, utter hopelessness, humiliation, shame, and defeat. But more so, God, God wraps up this word, but you, saying, I'm not bringing to you a new word. I want to remind you of what I have been saying to you long ago. But I want to bring this reminder to you now again. In other words, God is saying, but you, O Bethlehem, I'm going to bring out of your ruler. He's going to be for me. But I've spoken about him before. And my promises from long ago are valid even in your time of defeat, shame, hopelessness. He is going to come. I'm reminding you of my promises. I'm not telling you something new. I'm telling you what I've been telling you long ago. In other words, the effect of this little phrase at the end of verse 2 is to tell them, my people, look at my promises. Look at your circumstances. You may think that your circumstances may cancel out my plans, may think that my plans won't happen. I am telling you they will happen. Nothing that you're experiencing now will put an end to my plans. But look at verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. First of all, this little he shall give them up reminds us who is in control even over their defeat, over their shame, over their hopelessness. God is. God is the one who's been giving them up. It's not the Assyrians. It's not the, the future Babylonians. God is the one who's given his people up. But it's a limited giving up. Until the time when, and here's how this stops, until the time when a birth takes place. Verse 3, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Oh friends, God is giving us hope here that what he has spoken long ago, he will bring to pass, he will make happen. If you're in Micah's day, you may say, Lord, are you going to bring it now? And if, if we look back from where we are now, we know that it, it's another few hundred years that pass from the time of Micah reminding them of, his pro- of God's promises and the actual fulfillment of the birth. Friends, trust God's promises. Our current circumstances may tell us that, that God's promises are not coming to fruition, that God has forgotten you, that God is not working for you. And God's word says, I am going to bring a ruler. And he's coming is exactly what I've been telling you. Trust my word. His coming is certain. But it'll be a while. It'll be a while. Keep hoping. Keep trusting. Oh, friends, his coming is from an unnoticed place. His coming is for God. His coming confirms God's ancient plans. 
That's, these are the three things about his coming. But what's special about his reign? The rest of, of this uh, prophecy speaks not only about the coming and how he will come. The rest of this prophecy also speaks, second of all, the second major point that we're looking at, what's special about his reign? And here we want to highlight just two things briefly. Notice what his, he will, how he will reign. Verse 4, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. His, shep- his reign will be through shepherding. God promised ruler, this ruler whom God promised, will exercise dominion over his people by shepherding them. He comes as a ruler. He is a ruler. But his reign is not oppressive. Quite the opposite. His kingship feels more like shepherding. Shepherds provide leading. Shepherds provide protection. Shepherds provide provision. Shepherds bring back the sheep that are lost. It's amazing that one of the characteristics of what the shepherd will do through his shepherding is that his br- it says here, the rest of his brothers shall return. No wonder that Jesus in John 10 described himself, I am the great shepherd. And he promised in John 10, he said, I have some other sheep that are not yet part of this fold. And I will bring them too and bring them into this fold and they will be one flock with one shepherd. This king whom God promised will have dominion, but his dominion is not oppressive. His dominion is caring, guiding, providing, nourishing, healing, and restorative. Oh, friends, Jesus Christ, when he came, he came to shepherd and he came to bring God's people back to himself. Oh, friends, if you're you're not a Christian this morning, recognize that the king that God promised to bring is a king who wants God's people to be brought back to him. Friends, this is happening through the proclamation of the gospel, as we have proclaimed earlier. People recognizing their rebellion and sin before God. People recognizing that Jesus is God's means of making those who are lost right with God, be found by God, and be brought back to the Lord. If you'd like to know more what that means, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Or I would encourage you to speak to someone, perhaps someone who's invited you or someone who's next to you. Ask him, what does it mean to be brought back to the Lord? We'd love to talk to you about that. Friends, the shepherding that, that God, God's uh, uh, ruler will bring, the reign that he will bring is a restorative shepherding, a providing shepherding, a guiding shepherding, a protective shepherding. But second of all, this shepherd, as he shepherds, he does it. Notice how he does it. He does it in the strength of the Lord, and he does it in the majesty of the name of the Lord. The shepherding that, that this ruler will have is a shepherding that will rely on the strength of the Lord. His shepherding will be pointing God's people to the strength that is in the Lord. As an under-shepherd, as one of the three elders in this congregation, this text is convicting to me. And I shared this passage this past week when we have met with the elders. It challenges me to make sure that my shepherding and our shepherding here should be done not in our human strength, but in the strength that the Lord provides for us, for you, God's people. 
the fact that this ruler will shepherd in the strength of the Lord also tells us that this shepherding will not fail. His shepherding is secure. Friends, human church leaders may fail. I am a human. I too fail. But this great shepherd promised to shepherd his people in the, sh- in the, in the strength of the Lord, and his shepherding never, ever fails. His shepherding is also bringing into focus the majesty of the name of the Lord. That's why faithful shepherding in the local church should help people pursue and see the majesty of the name of God. It's not ultimately about our needs. It's not ultimately about our experiences. It's about the majesty of God. God is greater than our circumstances. And the king God, that God promised to bring will shepherd his people in the majesty of the name of God. You know what this means, dear friends, for us as we think about the shepherding that God wants to do over his people, even over his people here, over this congregation? What this means for us is that we want to encourage one another regularly in pursuing and seeking the majesty of the name of God. If the king God provides for his people will seek to shepherd God's people through the majesty of the name of God, then why would we settle for lower aims or for different aims? Some folks may feel better if they were shepherded through the majesty of human talent, of human focus, of human strength. But the king God promised has in mind a different kind of shepherding, a shepherding that has at its center the majesty of God. As a church, we want to be committed to pursuing the glory of God's name above everything else. What that means for us in our personal lives, we want to grow in our affections for the majesty of God. So ask yourself, does the name of the Lord seem casual to you? Boring to you? Unimpressive? Unmoving? You know that you are following closely the shepherd that God provided when our hearts continue to be amazed by the majesty of God. Sometimes our hearts don't experience this amazement. If your heart is like mine, I often don't experience this amazement. And I need to cultivate and to be reminded that the way the Lord Jesus wants to shepherd my own heart is by guiding me, calling me back to see the majesty of the name of the Lord. The way the Lord Jesus wants to shepherd his people together is to help them see and cultivate and grow both in their affections, both in their desires, both, and, and in, their, in their minds, in their imagination, in what their minds are captivated by, namely the majesty of the name of the Lord. This is how the shepherd will shepherd God's people, in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. And when he does it this way, notice what else he does, he brings. His reign will bring a second thing, not only shepherding, 
not only that care, not only that restorative bringing back to the Lord those who are lost, but his, his shepherding, his reign, will bring security to, to God's people. In verse 4, we, we read that they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Why will God's people dwell secure? Because, he got, because the shepherd will be great to the ends of the earth. Friends, there's a sense in which God's people are already secure, even now. But there's a sense in which the greatness of the name of Jesus is not yet known to the ends of the earth. That's why we do missions. That's why we support people who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, because the name of Jesus is not yet known greatly to the ends of the earth. That means that there's a sense in which our security is not yet fully here. A time will come when that security will be fully manifested. A time will come when the name of the Lord will be fully known to the ends of the earth. Friends, despite the lowly beginnings from which God will raise up a ruler, God will provide him, this ruler, with a worldwide greatness. Until that day comes, we're called to continue to support the work of gospel ministry, gospel spreading. We want to support that so that the name of Jesus will be known to the ends of the earth. But the effect of these promises upon the people of Micah's day is to assure them that their current situation is no obstacle for God to bring about his plans. Friends, if the people in Micah's day heard this word of hope, and even though they did not experience a fulfillment of it until centuries later, we look back now and realize, wait, the Lord has done it. The Lord has brought this king. The New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, makes it very clear. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. And he has come as a ruler. He has come to shepherd God's people. You might say, where's the security? Oh, friends, it's coming. It's still coming. Where's the greatness of the name of Jesus? It's coming. For those of us who know Jesus, we know his greatness. For those who don't know Jesus, they don't know his greatness yet. But friends, just as in the time of Micah, God called a remnant among his people to live with hope in the midst of terrible experiences, we who have seen and experienced and have the confirmation of the birth of Jesus, we have even more reasons to be confident God will fulfill every one of his promises. So as we look into the future, as we look at our present, let's remember the ancient hopes that God has revealed. Our hope, dear friends, comes in what God has already told us in Jesus. Today, we have more reasons to be confident in this hope because Jesus has been born. Today, we have so much more evidence and reasons to be confirmed in our faith. Even though our own experiences may lead us to question and wonder if God has, will bring about what he has promised, friends, it will. The life of the church is supposed to be a glimpse of that future reality. The life of the church is supposed to be a, a reality where people are shepherded. But the life of the church is to be a, a people where God's people experience the security that God promised. The security of being led, guided, nourished, cared for, provided for spiritually. Friends, what's special about the reign of Jesus? The reign of Jesus is happening through a shepherd. A shepherd who wants to bring God's people back to the Lord and keep them safe 
until they experience, until they will experience, and we, until we will experience an eternal security that will never, ever be thwarted by enemies, by bad experiences, by devastations. Until that day comes, just like the people in Micah's day were called to put our hope in the one who was born in Bethlehem. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you because our circumstances are never an obstacle for you to accomplish your plans. Father, we praise you that our greatness is not what you rely on to bring about your restoration. We praise you that nothing is too small for you to bring about a great outcome. Lord, we bring to you our smallness. We bring to you our, our hearts that might experience hopelessness or sadness or feeling defeat or shame or humiliation. We want to bring that to you and ask, Lord, do with us what you have promised to do through your shepherd. Let your shepherd be our shepherd. Lord, we pray that our hearts may worship you as we follow the one you have provided for us to be our great shepherd. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.